We praise your name because you are a God of purpose. You're a God of perfection. You're a God that sees a bigger picture than any of us might ever dream or imagine. And you're a God of plans, plans for each and every one of our lives. We thank you for the many blessings that you've given to this Dawson family of faith, to this church body. We thank you for loving us as much as you do. And today we ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for what you would have us hear this morning through your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you're excited this morning. I am. I'm excited about the sermon series we've enjoyed this summer entitled Verses. And I'm particularly excited about the verse this morning, Jeremiah 29, 11. You can go ahead and begin turning to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. You'll find it in page 779 of your pew Bible. And go ahead and get prepared as we get ready to enter into God's word today. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, we all know this is a very popular verse, as many of them have been this summer. In fact, Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of those verses you see just about everywhere you turn. You see it on wall art and printed pieces. You see it on graduation cards and many other areas in our society. And sadly, it tends to be a very popular verse, maybe for some of the wrong reasons. Oftentimes, it's used as sort of a name it and claim it verse uh, to teach us that if we just name it, we can claim it in the name of God. And when we use it in that way, sometimes we're communicating to the society that we live in that it's just all about me, that God just wants me to be happy, that God wants me to prosper and for me to enjoy all of his amazing blessings. And while there is some truth to that, Jeremiah 29, 11 really wasn't written directly for you or for me. It wasn't really intended for us in the way that our society has claimed it today. Now, the good news is we don't have to be a world-renowned theologian. We don't have to study years and years of biblical history and context to be able to to figure this out. We can just simply begin at the, the heading to the passage that we're going to look at in Scripture today that says, a message to the exiles, or in your pew Bibles, you may see it as a letter to the exiles. Well, pretty quickly, we can begin to hone in that maybe that wasn't directly intended for me. But despite this context clue that's pretty obvious, sometimes we still misinterpret, we misuse, we misapply the verse of Jeremiah 29, 11. So this morning, I don't want to step on any toes. My goal here this morning and our purpose here is for you to understand one thing, and that is this. It is not wrong. It is not inappropriate when God's people come together and we study his word and we look at a a verse or a passage or a specific area of scripture. And oftentimes we may even discuss it or debate it. And and our intended goal is to learn what God is really trying to say through that scripture. It's to edify each other and to edify his church and to bring glory to God. Absolutely nothing wrong inappropriate there. But where we get off the rails just a little bit is where we unintentionally and sometimes sadly intentionally, we manipulate or we sort of massage God's word a little bit. We put it in context that fits our personal desires or maybe justifies where we are at the moment. And so this morning, what I want to encourage each of us to do is to really listen to God's message through this passage in Jeremiah Understanding who God's character is, the power behind his promises and the hope and the future that he gives us, and how it applies to our lives. 
So I've selected several verses, Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 14, because these verses cumulatively make up a letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote to those people from the nation of Israel who had been deported from Jerusalem to Babylon about 600 years before Christ. They were in exile. Now, if you read the entire book of Jeremiah, you'll notice one very exciting thing about Jeremiah. Not only was he a prophet, but he was a shepherd. Jeremiah was a, was a true pastor. He had the people of God's heart in mind. And Jeremiah's goal was to provide them some level of encouragement, to, to ease the suffering, to help them persevere and know that God was with them during their time in captivity in Babylon. And he had two desires. Number one, Jeremiah wanted them to be good witnesses for God while they were living in an idolatrous Babylon, a society that worshiped idols, that worshiped false gods. During that time, he wanted God's people to be good witnesses for their Father in heaven. And the second thing is, is he wanted Israel to be good Jews during that time. They were separated from the temple. They were separated from their daily routines of, of staying connected to God in the same way they had been used to in Jerusalem. And he wanted them to learn how to live as good Jews in this society. And he does this by writing this letter of encouragement, and he tries to focus on several of the feelings or the emotions or the sentiments that the people in exile might have been going through or might have been feeling during this time. And the first one he focuses on are people that maybe felt like they had no hope. Maybe they felt like they were in a hopeless situation being in Babylon. That's easy to understand if you look at what had happened. The, the Babylonians had come over to Jerusalem. They had conquered the Israelites. They had brought back many of those Jews, many of those Israelites to Babylon. So they were ripped from their homes and their family and their friends and their support networks and neighborhoods and everything that was familiar to them. They had traveled a long distance. They probably were experiencing sadness, tragedy, maybe even mourning death of loved ones. The journey was not an easy one. The journey was one of 500 miles from, from Jerusalem to Babylon across a desert. So they probably didn't take that route. In fact, what most people in those days did is formed a northerly route. They had to leave up out of Jerusalem north, and they traveled several hundred miles and then began coming southeast again along the Euphrates River because they had to travel along water sources to get to Babylon. And that journey, unlike the other one, 500 miles across the desert, this was 900 miles approximately. Three, four, five months of travel, depending on the size of the group. Many may not have even survived the journey. So amongst all these feelings and emotions of hopelessness and, and, and feeling pulled away from your family and friends and separated from all of your support, another interesting thing remains true, and that is yesterday they were free, and today they're slaves. They're in captivity in Babylon. So Jeremiah was writing to these people that might have been feeling completely hopeless and in a hopeless situation. Now, there's, a, there's an application here I don't want you to miss before we go any further and jump into Scripture. There is no such thing as a hopeless situation for believers in Jesus Christ. See, when we face difficult times, when we face seemingly hopeless situations, it's in that moment that we place ourselves in the hands of God. We trust in his plan to deliver us as he has promised he would. Warren Wearsby, a Bible teacher and commentator, said this, one of the first steps in turning tragedy into triumph is to accept the situation courageously 
and then to place ourselves in the hands of a loving God, and don't miss this, who makes no mistakes. A loving God with a perfect plan who makes no mistakes. I think back to 2005, August, Hurricane Katrina hit the coast of this country. There was much devastation and and destruction. People lost their homes and their belongings and their possessions. And during that time, just a few days later, a family made their way to Birmingham. And a young man came to our Hispanic ministry and became involved in our youth group. I remember the first time he showed up, I was serving as a volunteer youth pastor for that group at that time. And the young man came, and I got to know him, and we engaged in a conversation. And trying to be helpful and eager and supportive, I said, well, can I help you unpack your U-Haul and get your stuff all out of boxes and situated? And I begin to see the look on his face change as he looks at me with just this this perspective of of shock and confusion. He said, we didn't come in a U-Haul. And I realized at that point what I had done, put my foot in my mouth, and he said, we, didn't, we, we grabbed a few possessions, we put them in the back of our car, and we left. And so as if that wasn't enough, I, I mistakenly continued, and I said, well, can I help you find some furniture, find some things for your new home and your new apartment? And again, the same blank stare of confusion as he says, well, right now we're sleeping on the sofa in the living room of a friend of ours here in Birmingham as my mom's trying to find work and we're trying to get back on our feet and so forth. And I thought, you know, yesterday he was with his family and his friends and everything that made sense to him in his school. And today, here he is, completely out of his element, trying to get reestablished. And you might think that was a feeling or a sentiment or a situation of hopelessness. But then I look back a dozen years now and I see how God's perfect plan was never hopeless. And it made perfect sense. His desire was to bring that family here. And that young man found his way to Dawson Memorial Baptist Church, to our family of faith, to our Hispanic ministry. That young man came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, was baptized here in this very, very church. What an exciting reminder that there's no such thing as hopeless in God's plan. In the same way that that is true, it was true for the exiles. Those that were in Babylon, it was not a hopeless situation. Watch what happens as we get into verse 5 and verse 6. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and have daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Now, just prior to this in verse 4, the message is, this is what the Lord has said to you who are in exile. I carried you from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now I want you to do these things. I want you to build houses. I want you to settle down. I want you to have sons and daughters and have them marry and have sons and daughters. I don't want you to decrease. I want you to increase. I want you to thrive. Now, just a few chapters earlier in the context of Jeremiah, chapter 25, we see Jeremiah comes to God's people and he says, Israel, you're going to serve in Babylon for 70 years. Not the most exciting message to hear if you're in captivity, 70 years is a long time. If you were listening to that message and understood Jeremiah's words, you would have realized one thing. I'm not likely going to see Jerusalem again. I'm not going to live long enough to return to my native lands. So now Jeremiah in chapter 29 is saying, settle down. This is what God wants you to do. Have families, have children and grandchildren. Why? Because in God's plan, he could see 70 years down the road. God could see the big picture, and he knew he was going to rescue his people and deliver them home, but there had to be people to rescue. There had to be future generations for God to make that 
promise come true. And so he said, settle down. I'm going to deliver you in 70 years. Interestingly enough, there is a verse or two verses, excuse me, in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you'll just listen, it, it applies to this. And I think it would have been a good message for the exiles to hear. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God on the day he visits us. We are all strangers, if you will, living in a very temporary world, a very non-permanent, non-eternal situation here on this earth. And what are we called to do? God reminds us every day to trust and obey in his perfect plan, to trust that his plan is better than anything that you or I could ever design or ever produce. And we must trust that in that perfect plan, God has never had an intention to harm his people. There is always hope in God's plan. So in addition to talking to those who may have been feeling hopeless, Jeremiah was also writing this letter because there was a group of people, many of the Israelites, who were clinging to a false hope. They weren't hopeless. It's just that the hope that they had was a false hope. Follow along with me as we go into verse 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Now, instead of resisting, which is what many of the false prophets were teaching, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, Jeremiah was saying that the exiles needed to seek peace. They needed to try to get along in Babylon, make friends with your neighbors and your enemies, be peacemakers, not troublemakers. The bells should be going off now as we think back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, when he said the very same, very same thing. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they will be called sons of God. And then he continues in verse 7. Watch what Jeremiah says. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, what was he telling him to pray for? It wasn't peace. He was saying, pray for the city. Pray for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Interestingly enough, it's the same message for many of us today. What are we called to do? We're living in a foreign land in that sense that it's temporary and it's not eternal. We're not here for an eternal period of time. We're called to pray. We need to be praying for our neighbors. We need to be praying for Birmingham. We need to be praying for our state and our nation. We need to be praying for those around us, even those that may not believe as we do. We need to be peacemakers in our community, just as God called those exiles to do. Now, it's interesting because if we move forward, we'll see in verse 8 that God says this, yes, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them declares the Lord. Now, we said we were going to get to the false prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 28, just one chapter before what we're looking at today, there's a false prophet, Hananiah, that comes on the scene, and he begins to teach Israel something very different than the message of God from Jeremiah. Ananias says this, resist. 
Don't worry about settling down. Don't worry about fitting in. Don't worry about being peacemakers. I want you to resist because God is going to break Babylon, and inside of two years, you're going to be rescued. Now, Jeremiah, on the one hand, just a a little bit earlier, had said, 70 years you will serve Babylon, says God. Now, on the other hand, we've got over here, two years. And sadly, the elders, the priests, the prophets, the leaders, the nation of Israel as a whole, they really decided that that two-year plan sounded a lot better than the 70 years that Jeremiah had told them they would serve. And it sort of made sense in the context of history. If we look at what was going on, the Babylonians were actually over in Egypt fighting a war. They weren't even focused on what was going on at home. The king was a little distracted. Kind of made sense that maybe God was starting to break down Babylon and then the rumors begin to spread as they always do in these situations. And pretty quickly, everybody began to believe that inside of two years, they were going to be rescued. But it shouldn't be any surprise that false prophets bring false messages and false messages lead to false hope. And that's what many of the Israelites were feeling at that time. And sometimes today we get to those points as well. We have sort of a false hope we cling to And it comes from what we want to believe. When we convince ourselves that we want to believe something bad enough, it sort of creates a false hope within us, and we forget about the one true hope that comes from the Word of God. Let me explain a little bit about false hope this way. There is, in 1915, a passenger ship, a British ocean liner named the Lusitania. Many of you who study your history will know what I'm talking about. But it was a ship during the time of World War I that was proclaimed to be one of the fastest ships out there. In fact, it was thought it's probably never going to have a chance of being sunk or attacked because it would just outrun the enemy. And so, despite some warnings, the Lusitania set sail in 1915. And not long after it got out into open waters, a German submarine fired a torpedo on the Lusitania and struck the ship. Captain William Turner was captain of the Lusitania, and the record shows that a woman came up to the captain and said, Captain Turner, what shall we do? Where shall we go? The captain responded to the lady, and he said, Madam, stay where you are. She's all right, she being the ship. And the woman didn't stop there. She continued to press on. She said, Captain Turner, where did you get your information? The captain responded with others in earshot in, in listening to him, saying, hey, I got it from the engine room. Now, there was no such message that came from the engine room. In fact, Captain Turner was throwing that out there in kind of uh, an attempt to calm everybody down given the circumstances. Unfortunately, what he did is he created false hope. And here's why. The people on the ship that heard that wanted to believe it. The ship can't sink. There's no way it's going to go down. So rumors spread, and everybody throughout the ship began to think, this is not a problem. There's nothing to worry about. And they clung to that false hope. Well, sadly, of the almost 2,000 souls on board, 1,200 of them perished as the Lusitania did, in fact, sink and go down. So when we cling to false hope, here's what goes wrong. We miss God's plan for our life. So rather than cling to false hope, rather than be in a situation of no hope at all, what we're called to do is to find true hope, which comes only from the Word of God. Will you move to verse 10 with me and see what God's word says? It says this, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. See, true hope comes from the word of God. It doesn't show up in the mouths of of false prophets or in their deceiving messages. God gave his people a promise and God would fulfill that promise. God's plans for his people are never 
plans that will bring anything but hope and peace. That is God's plan. There's no need for us as God's people to be discouraged, no need for us to be afraid or to feel like we have no hope or to feel like we have to cling to false hope. And now to 2911, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Now, I'm like many, and when I read this verse, it's very easy to want to personalize it, to want to make it a little bit about me. God knows the plans he has for me. God knows the plans that he has for me, and they're plans to prosper me and plans to give me all these wonderful blessings. And we kind of hone in on that word prosper. We think of those, those blessings in the amazing way God is going to enrich our lives. But Jeremiah's message was not intended for us in that way. It was intended for those leaders in the nation of Israel at that time and in that place. Now, it's true, God's message to his people was that everything is going to be all right, eventually, in God's time and according to God's perfect plan. The nation of Israel that heard that message, they would not have individualized it the way our society has today. They would not have personalized it. They understood it was a promise of future welfare for the nation of Israel, not not a promise of personal prosperity to one individual or to a specific family or a specific group of people. And the same is true today. As God's people, we're not guaranteed the American dream. We're not guaranteed a life of comfort or ease or personal riches or glory or all the things that we might find ourselves wanting. What we are guaranteed is that in Jesus Christ, There will be restoration eventually, according to God's plan. So how do we maintain true hope? Aren't there a lot of things in our lives sometimes that kind of want to shatter that hope that we have? How do we maintain that and avoid being depressed or feeling hopeless? Well, it comes from this, and I'll, I'll share this in the form of a story because I think it speaks loudly. There was a man who approached a community ballpark, a field, and he saw a little league baseball game taking place. And as he approached the fence, he noticed a young, young fellow sitting in the dugout, kind of clinging to the fence, watching the game intently with the uniform on, ready to play. And the man approaches the little boy and he said, son, what's the score? The little boy answered, 18 to zero, we're losing. And the man said, well, son, I'm sorry to hear that. You must be very discouraged. And the boy looked at him with a, a face of shock and confusion and said, why would I be discouraged? It's only the first inning. We haven't even gotten up to bat. And as I think of the humor of that illustration, as I, as I, I know it's, it's humorous, but as we think through that, sometimes finding true hope in God's plan means we've got to wait patiently for our turn to bat because that's when God is going to do amazing things. So as believers in Jesus Christ, for those that have a personal relationship with him, Jeremiah 29, 11 still has some, some kind of confusing context and con- some confusing questions that might come up. So I'm going to address those and leave those for you to think about today. You might be sitting there and you might have this question. Does Jeremiah 29, 11 apply to me? I mean, after all, I just listened to three-fourths of a message that said it was written for somebody 2,500 years ago and not for me. Does it apply? Just days ago, Russell Moore, who's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, blogged on that very same question. Does this verse apply to me? Watch what he said. He says, Jeremiah 29, 11 must be read in the context of the entire book of Jeremiah. 
Now that makes perfect sense. He goes on to say, and the book of Jeremiah must be read in context of the entire story of the nation of Israel. Again, very much makes sense. But watch what he says next. But all of Jeremiah and Israel's context must be read in the context of God's purposes in Jesus Christ. And he finishes by saying, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not Russell Moore's words. That's not Randy Poe's words. That's God's words. 2 Corinthians 1.20 reminds us, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Well, you might be thinking, well, how do I really know God has a plan for me? How do I understand that God has a plan for me? The same way that the exiles over 2,000 years ago did. You understand that God has a plan for you because it comes from God's word and not from the circumstances or the situation that you're in. Now, I said we're going to go all the way to verse 14, and I want you to see what happens next. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are a beautiful application of how God teaches us that he does have a plan for us and how we can understand that plan. Verse 12, if you'll follow along with me, says, Then you will call on me, and you will come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Understanding God's plan and knowing that God has a plan for us comes when we call on him, when we pray to him, when we seek him with all of our heart. That's the answer to the question. Well, you might be saying, well, can I claim it? Can I really truly claim Jeremiah 29, 11? Is that something that I can hold on to? Let me answer you this way. Yes, because it is a promise of God to his people. Now, not in the way that the name it and claim it society we live in today has misapplied it. Not in that way, because we understand it's not going to bring us the riches and the glory and the prosperity that we might seek. But yes, because it is a promise of God to his people. Can we say this? Can we say, does God have a plan for you and me? Yes, he does. Is God's plan a plan for us to do good and not to do harm? Well, yes, it is. Can we ask this question, does he give us hope in a future? Absolutely. Absolutely, he does. All of God's promises are true. And hope is always on the horizon, eventually, according to God's plan. So what do we do meanwhile? What do we do in the meantime? Well, God's plan for each and every one of us is that we would seek his kingdom, that we would pursue the things of his kingdom and not pursue the things of the world. It is true, God has blessed many believers with riches and prosperity and glory, and that's fine. That's part of God's plan as he chooses. But let me end with this. We are blessed because of who we belong to, church not what belongs to us. Will you pray with me this morning? God, once again, we thank you because you are a perfect God of perfect plans, perfect intentions. You see things from a perspective miles down the road that we can't even imagine. God, you bless us in so many ways. God, this morning, I pray that we would not be a people of hopelessness, 
We would not be a people looking to cling to the things of this world and the false hopes that it presents, but we would be a people that pursue the things of your kingdom through the true hope that comes only from understanding your word, the word of God for our lives. God, would you continue to bless us and watch over us as we seek your plan and your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.